Today I invite you to open your Bible and find, the, if you brought your copy of God's Word, and uh, if you'll find the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and that's where we're at today, Mark chapter number 14, and uh, I want to begin with verse number 1 today. So Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin with verse number 1. Then it was two days before the Passover, and the festival and unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than a 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So... He started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Today, as we think on this passage of scripture, I've titled this message, Worship Wars. Worship that is pleasing to the Lord. You know, the very thing that ought to unite us as a community of faith has become an issue that divides us. The gathering to focus on God and to seek to lavish our love on him and to seek his face and to lift our burdens and cast our cares on him in prayer has lost its focus. Instead of communion, there is fracture. This is understandable if the issue is an essential doctrine that's being denied or leaving the gospel or adding to the gospel or denying the authority of scripture. But sadly, most of the arguments in the division is about our preferences, what we like, what is familiar, or a style that is pleasing to us. The issue it's also sometimes cultural issues, political politics, and personal concerns. 
But the gathering of worship ought to unite us. Amen? And when our focus is on not what pleases me, but what pleases him, what is pleasing unto the Lord, what is it the Lord wants to see in our worship, then we find ourselves united. What is it that the Lord wants to see in our worship? I think when the Lord sees us gathered for worship, it's not to talk about who's going to win the presidential election. It's not about politics. It's not about your opinion of our governor or our Congress or whatever other pet issues you want to discuss. When we gather for worship, it ought to be about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It ought to be about loving one another, about our faith in God and how Christ has rescued us, about our surrender to his lordship, about a passionate desire to please him and obey him and to know him with him and to walk with him. It ought to be, when we gather together, it ought to be a gathering of honesty and confession and thanksgiving and praise. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prays for unity. He says, as he's praying to the Lord, may they be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. When the church is united together in Christ Jesus, it gives, it, it validates and gives authenticity to the message, message that we preach. Paul appeals to the church in Ephesus, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul writes to a very gifted but divided congregation in Corinth, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be removed from you alongside all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also has forgave you in Christ. Amen. Isn't that a good reminder? Sometimes disunity is important to distinguish what is true, but too often the issue is sin in our own hearts that causes the division in a church. Many years ago now, there was a division in a couple of our churches in the metro area. It became well known in the whole community. A pastor left, a new church was started, and there became an intense competition between the congregations. Keeping of score, keeping of attendances, and bad-mouthing one another. In some communities, the division within churches has heard the, heard the gospel. I know communities who have Baptist churches, and there's First Baptist Church. They were the first. And then they divided. Now there's a second Baptist church. And then they divided, and then there was a third Baptist church. That's not good. Or one church 
the Bethel Baptist Church, and then they divided. Now there's the new Bethel Baptist Church. The one that's hilarious, but not really, is Unity Baptist Church, and now Greater Unity Baptist Church. In this passage of scripture that we're looking at today, I want us to look at it together and look at the characters and the actors and what took place in this story and see if we can't find some truths for us to apply in our lives. In the 14th chapter of Mark, Jesus has noticed the story, sort of the background. It is Passover week and the holy city, Jerusalem, is filled with guests from all over the world. And they have come to worship God. It's a high and holy week when people make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's Passover week. And there's a little village, just a Sabbath day journey, just a couple of miles outside of the walls of Jerusalem toward the mountain, the Mount of Olives. And this little village is called Bethany. It is the favorite retreat place of Jesus when he's in Jerusalem. And it's the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And notice there is a, the, the background, notice the host of this dinner that's given in honor of Christ. It's a banquet. And in verse number three, when he was in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, at the house of Simon the leper in verse number three. So who is the host? Well, we know he's called Simon, and he had leprosy formerly, but he's been healed of this leprosy, and surely he is celebrating Jesus and has him at this banquet. Now, this, this banquet should not be confused with one described in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, which is hosted by another Simon, who is Simon a Pharisee, but this is a, not a hostile host, but a gracious host. And he's most likely a relative of Mary and Martha and Lazarus there in Bethany. As a matter of fact, there's a tradition that says that this is Mary and Martha and Lazarus' father, who is Simon the leper. So this is the host. Secondly, not only the host, look at the guest. Who is at this banquet? At this banquet are his disciples, the 12, the apostles, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We're told in John's Gospel, chapter 12, that Martha is indeed serving dinner. She is helping serve and deliver the meal to the table and prepare it. Lazarus's presence at the, at the meal, it tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 12. And it says that many people are coming to hear him speak about the awesome experience of being raised from the dead. Community people are there. They're out-of-town guests who came for the Passover holiday. And there were people there to see Lazarus because of what an unbelievable story that he had been raised from the dead. So the guest is filled with the apostles, with Lazarus and his family, his sisters, and uh, his father-in-law, uh, his father and others, and it, the house is filled with people. Thirdly, notice in the story, the giver. Notice in chapter 14 and uh, verse, uh, verse number three, as they're reclining at the table, they 
would sit around the table and lean on, on one side in sort of couches is the way that you would gather around a table to eat. And a woman came. Now, it wouldn't be women sitting at the table, but often serving or standing along the side or taking their meal at a different time than the men do. And they're gathered around the table. And while they're doing, a woman comes there. A woman comes in with an alabaster jar. Now notice, who is this woman? This alabaster jar is filled with very expensive perfume. Who is this woman? Well, we're told in the other Gospels who she is. In, chapter, in, in John chapter 12, John identifies it as Mary herself, Lazarus' sister. And she, Mary, was a learner. She loved the Lord Jesus. She was so in love with him. She sat at Jesus' feet. Remember when Martha was serving? Martha kind of got aggravated at her sister. Said, hey, would you, Lord, would you make my sister get up and help do all the service rather than just sit here at your feet? And he said to her, he kind of rebukes her. He said, Martha, she's chosen the best part, the better part. She had been forgiven of her sins. She had come to know Jesus Christ in a most personal, intimate way. And she had been forgiven much, so she loved much. Why did she love Jesus so? Because he was her savior. He was her rabbi and her master and her teacher. And when she looked at him, she got it. And she saw the love in his eyes. And she saw the hope that he brought. And she experienced the forgiveness that he extended. And she was transformed by his life. And when she looked around the table, she saw other people's lives who had been transformed by Jesus. And she saw her brother who was dead, who had been raised again to life. And she saw her father who had been sick with leprosy and now had been restored and healed. And she is now at the feet of Jesus serving him. And she loves him. She is worshiping him. What is the gift that she brings? Mary. Mary brings an alabaster. Now, alabaster is a type of stone. It's semi-transparent. It's fragile. It was used to contain this kind of special perfume. It was a vile container with a long neck on the front of it, sealed at the top. And it was filled with this gift with very expensive perfume. The scripture says it was pure nard. Nard is from a plant in India. It is a very potent perfume. It is in, in full undiluted nard was extraordinarily expensive. It says it's pure nard, it's unadulterated, it's not diluted. Now, it wouldn't be unusual for somebody, to their head, to be anointed with oil as a guest in the home. Or for a servant to wash your feet. That was typical when you came to a banquet. But she comes and she breaks this alabaster stone and she lavishly pours the entire contents on the head of Jesus, flowing down 
not only his hair and into his beard, but then she takes her long hair and she uses it like a towel and she finds herself at the feet of Christ and she is massaging and wiping her, his feet with her hair in an act of love. Now that seems weird to us. It does. And it was very intimate thing to do even in Jesus' day. But it was lavishing her love on him. She takes this spikenard, your translation may say. That means because the plant is, as it grows, has a, a tall stem on it like wheat. And it's like a spiky look to the top of it. And the whole room, as she breaks this alabaster jar, the whole room is filled with the aroma of the gift that she's bringing. It's a precious thing, an expensive thing. As a matter of fact, those who object in a moment, they say that could have been sold for over 300 denarii. Now, what is a denarii? A denarius was one, a working man's wage for one day's work. So if you worked all day and you got paid a denarius, then that was a day's wage. How much was this bottle of perfume worth? Through over 300 days worth of work. Wow. It was very expensive. And she pours it out. Now, it wouldn't be unusual that someone might take it and measure out a small little bit and add it to the oil, and the room would fill with the perfume and the smell and save it for later. But no, Mary, in an act of sheer extravagance, pours the whole thing on Jesus. Do you think everybody in the room just got thrilled by that? No. Notice the objection. And whenever somebody begins to pour out their heart in worship, you shouldn't be surprised that some people object. In verse number four, it says, but some were expressing indignation to one another. The objectors are talking to each other. Why has this perfume been wasted? They call it this lavish act of love and worship. They call it a waste. And they're indignant toward the one who's done it. Critics, listen to me. Critics are always looking for others to join them in criticism. They like to talk among themselves. And then when they've gathered strength, they direct it against Mary, the worshiper. They become indignant toward her. They demean her and they demean Jesus. They said it's a waste. And the ringleader in this is one of the apostles and it's Judas. In chapter 12 of John, verse number 4, we see Judas is behind this. And notice how this story is connected with Judas that we'll get to in mo just a moment. 
And And so the argument was, why was this not sold and given to the poor? If Jesus really cared for the poor, then he wouldn't allow this waste. And this was Judas's argument. Now, you might think that the indignation and the objection would have been the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. But no, it's not. Sadly, the objectors become the apostles themselves. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, about chapter 26, Matthew tells us that Judas voices it and the apostles join in. And they began this verbal abuse of Mary forgiving and pouring out this expensive gift on Jesus. They scorn her. R.C.H. Linsky in his commentary on This passage of scripture says, Judas speaking for the poor? Making himself the judge who deserves this gift? Judas implies that Jesus is robbing the poor? Judas speaking on himself, about himself, that he rightly cares about charity and that Jesus' example is wrong, hurts others, and that Jesus is only thinking of himself and that Judas is somehow right and Jesus is somehow wrong. Linsky says, what arrogance. This traitor in his heart, subversive to Jesus in the very room that this act of love is happening. And others join in his voice of rebellion. My friends, I want you to listen close. We need to be careful. When you join the voices of critics of other people's worship. Amen. Why were they objecting? Well, number one, Judas was a thief, we're told. And not only was a thief, he was in charge of the treasury bag, the money bag, and he often stole from it. And what he said was, this is a waste. I think it's interesting, the word that he uses here, is the word waste, wasted, lost. It's the same Very same word that Jesus uses in John's gospel, chapter 17, when he calls Jesus, when he calls Judas, Jesus does, the son of perdition. And the word perdition and waste is the same word. Wow. I think people act indignantly like this because of the cost I think also because of the act itself. Now listen to me. Sometimes when people worship and you see the intimacy of that worship, it makes us also uncomfortable when it seems too personal. And she didn't care though. 
She didn't care what anybody else in the room thought about. All she did was she wanted to pour her love on Jesus. And she showered him with her love. It wasn't a waste. It was worship. And he, he was her treasure. He had saved her life. He had healed her father. He had taught her. He had valued her. And he had raised her brother to life and she was his servant and he was her Lord and her master and her king and she loved him more than she loved anything or anyone else in the world. And she wanted to pour her most intimate possession on him. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? And it says they began to snort at her. They scolded her. Very strong word. They talked badly at her. They rolled their eyes and they began to dress her down. It reminds me of an Old Testament story about King David. King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of David. And he was celebrating before the ark of the Lord and he was wearing only a linen ephod and he was dancing before the Lord with, and whirling and singing and sacrificing and praising and adoring God. It was, it was, he was filled with ecstasy and worship. He's the king. But he was, he was just consumed with being in the presence of God and blessing him. And he blessed all of those around him and all of his leaderships and all of those people who helped bring the ark and all of the servants about him. And when he went home to bless his own family, he was received with indignation in his own home by his own wife. Have you ever been uncomfortable around somebody else who was just... They're just so in love with Christ. They're worshiping him and loving him. And it was hard for you to understand, but it made you a little uncomfortable. I have. When I was a boy, I used to go to my, occasionally I'd go to my grandmother's church. Her church was more out in the country. And my grandmother's church, it was a Baptist church. It was a free will Baptist church. And in, in that country church, the preaching was loud. The preaching was biblical. And the preaching was emotional. And sometimes the preaching, the pastor would get caught up in preaching. And sometimes his style of preaching, the way he was preaching, had almost a, a, a sing-song kind of pattern to it. And I used to be just fascinated by the whole worship. It was different than our church. And as that worship service was going, they sang. Sometimes they sang out of the hymnal. But sometimes they sing out of chorus books. And they just worship the Lord. And it was in the, that country church filled with farmers and coal miners and shopkeepers. And, 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 and it was, it, yet something would happen in that service that was beyond words, that transcended just the words said. It was the heart of the preacher and the congregation as they were worshiping God. And the Holy Spirit was appealing and speaking. 
older men and coal miners praising the Lord. An amen corner where guys sat and encouraged the preacher as he preached. And I remember sitting there as a little boy. And one of those men got so excited, so moved by the Holy Spirit that he jumped up. And not only did he jump up, he shouted. And he started shouting, glory to God, praise the God, praise the Lord. And he started walking up and then he started jogging. He jogged all the way around the room. I thought, what have I got myself into? And my grandmother reached over and patted me on the knee. And she said, don't you be afraid. He's just happy. <laughs> I love that. He's just happy. Honey, he's not. He, he's not crazy. He's just happy. As we sang those gospel songs, I looked over my grandmother and she always held a lace kind of handkerchief in her hand to dab the tears that flowed from her eyes. When's the last time you were happy in the Lord? I was a college student. I went to that bastion of orthodoxy Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. We gathered with lots of other Christians and believers for Bible study and worship. And I went with, who was my college pastor at the time, I went to a Bible conference that he invited me to go to with a bus filled with other people. And we went all the way to the Dallas-Fort Worth area to a conference in First Baptist Church of Euless, Texas. There were probably 3,000 people there in that worship service. I'd never been in a service like that in my life. It was, it was so filled with people as we were hearing God's word preached all day long and singing. And, and our hearts were moved. And my heart was so overflowing, so moved. I, I was 20 years old. I remember sitting. I had to sit in the choir loft because the whole uh, audit, every, there, there was no room. So they opened the big choir loft that had 100 chairs in it. And I sat in the choir loft. And on that closing night of one of the sessions, I heard two or three great messages. My heart was filled. I was so in love with the Lord. God was speaking to me. And I don't know exactly what happened toward the end of that service. The Holy Spirit moved in my heart in a way that all of a sudden I didn't know it. I didn't plan it. I was standing at my feet screaming, shouting, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And when I realized what I had done, I was so embarrassed. I literally sat back down and I wept. We got on the bus late that night. And my pastor put his arm. And I wept. I said, I'm so embarrassed. He said, don't you be embarrassed. He 
said, did you see what happened? I said, no. I don't even know what I did. He said, the, when you stood up and started shouting, the whole room stood up and started shouting to the glory of God. You might be tempted now to think critically of me. But I don't care. Notice the story continues with a rebuke. Notice the rebuke of Jesus in verse number 6 and 7. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Stop it. Why are you bothering her, he says. She has done a noble, a good, a beautiful thing. The poor, you have them always. But you don't always have me. And then notice the commendation. In verse number 8 and 9, he memorializes her. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body. She did what she could. She gave her best. She's anointed me in advance for burial. She's done more for me than she even knew. She was led by the Spirit. It reminds me when he commends her. It reminds me of about the woman, the widow that Jesus saw in the temple just hours before. And as he sees this woman in the temple, this widow, she gave just a small little bit that she had. But Jesus said, you see her? She gave the biggest gift of all because others gave out of their surplus. But she gave all that she had. This gets heaven's attention when you give in an uncalculated way, when you give not out of your safety, but you give it all and you lavish your love on them. And this is exactly the kind of love that Jesus has for us, except in greater way. Because in just a few hours, Jesus will be in an upper room with his disciples with no slave there to help wash their feet. And Jesus himself takes the role of a servant. And Jesus himself strips of his outer garments and he girds himself with a towel. And Jesus, in an act of love, washes the feet of disciples. And he loves them in the rebellion. And greater still, it points to the cross where Jesus will go and he will die on the cross. He will be washing our sins away on the cross. There, Jesus not, does not die for anything wrong that he has done, but he dies for our sin. And God makes him who knows no sin to become sin on our part that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus gives us all that we might be saved. What a Savior we have. He broke and spilt out his life so we might have life. I choose. Do you choose? The Jesus way. And Jesus said, whenever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospels preach, and in every generation the gospels preached, 
what this woman has done will be remembered. Because what she did is connected to the gospel. Whoo! That all caused you to be happy right there. Notice the contrast. I have a little chart here we'll put on the wall of Mary and Judas. Mary was a woman. She had no standing. Judas is a man, and he's one of the apostles. Mary, she gave what she could. Judas took what he could get. Mary blessed her Lord. Judas betrayed his Lord. We go immediately from this text to Judas going out and bartering the betrayal of Jesus. Mary loved her Lord. Judas used his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her Savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. And Mary is notable forever for her devotion. And Judas... Notorious forever for his betrayal. So what is the lesson? The lesson that we find in this story today, it should cause us to ask this question. This would be a good question for your community group. What kind of worship is pleasing to the Lord? And the second question is what kind of worship is displeasing to the Lord? What is pleasing to the Lord is, first of all, is you ought to be a personal. Your worship's personal. Now, when we gather, we're gathered corporately, but you are still individually and personally worshiping the Lord. Amen? And it needs to be genuine. It's you before him. It ought to be natural. It ought to be led of the Spirit. It ought to be... It ought to be grateful. It ought to be worshipful. It ought to be personal. But it's also public. You're confessing him before men. And it's humble, not filled with arrogance. And it's sacrificial and honoring to Christ. And not to bring attention to yourself, but to lavish your love on him. When we gather, let's love Jesus. Let's, let's love Jesus. Let's love him. Let's adore him. Let's worship him. Let's fix our eyes on him. Encouraging one another to do the same. Amen. But what kind of worship is displeasing? Worship that's critical and judgmental. When you get your eyes on other people and you begin to criticize them, that's easy for me to do. I can sit in a worship service and criticize. I can criticize the music. I can criticize the music leaders. I can criticize what people are wearing. I can criticize. I have a critical eye. I know it. And I can have a critical spirit and I can be cynical. I can be critical of the preacher. I can be critical of the words he uses. I can be critical of his use of language 
And you can be too. And you can be judgmental, judgmental of how somebody leads the music, how somebody, gets, somebody else gets excited about what the songs that are selected. And instead of focusing on Christ, you become critical. And let me tell you, when you become critical and judgmental, you've moved away from the Lord. And we should not take that lightly. Now listen, when David, you remember when he got so consumed bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of David? You remember how he was dancing and celebrating? And, and when he got home, his wife, Saul's daughter, his wife, Michal, she says to him, Oh, how, with, with cutting sarcasm, Oh, how the king has, ex has really, really showed himself today. How distinguished your behavior today. Out there, whirling about in your ephod, dancing. I'm sure the slave girls enjoyed watching you dance like that. And David looked at her and said, you know what the issue is? The issue is not my dancing or the Lord. The issue is you. And you're still mad because you're dead. Because God took the kingdom away from your dad and his family and he gave it to me. And you're dishonest about your criticism. And I'm going to worship God. I don't care. And I'm going to worship him even more. And I tell you who will respect me. Those slave girls will honor me. Because my heart is right in worshiping God. And then it says. And then it says. In 2 Samuel 6. And she did not bear children all of her life. Why? Because from that day, she had lost her intimacy with the king. There would be no intimacy with the king. And she would not bear fruit in her life. And when you become a critic and the Holy Spirit's working, you've moved away from the king. You've lost your intimacy and the fruit of it. But also dishonesty and deception, and that's where Judas was. Today, the Spirit of the Lord is among us. How many of y'all believe God's Spirit is right here among us? The Lord is here. Let's worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's remember Him. Let's celebrate Him. And let's lavish our love on Him. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And as we take this supper, we'll remember him. Focus on him. Surrender to him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's powerful. Thank you for the lessons from this great story. And I pray that you would have your way in our hearts and lives. Lord, if there's one person here today who's moved away and 
their walk with you is not right. They've never trusted you as Savior. Or if they have trusted, they've, they've made it all about themselves. Lord, we come home to you in repentance and faith. And we ask you to forgive us and cleanse us. And God, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we want to lavish our love on him today and surrender to him. Have your way in our hearts, Father. Hear us as we pray. Dear God, forgive us. Dear God, cleanse us. Dear God, save us. Dear God, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.